a listener production. Welcome to Allergies, where Professors Katie Allen and Mimi Tang from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute break down in detail the diagnosis, management, prevention and cure of allergies, as well as the facts and myths about intolerances and treating other diseases like asthma and eczema. Now, we've touched on the different kinds of allergies that cause reactions, but we're going to focus on the IgE-mediated reactions and how we diagnose them. So, Mimi, what does IgE actually stand for? Yeah, so Ig is immunoglobulin, which is an antibody, and there are a number of different types of antibodies that the body can make. There's IgE, which is the allergy antibody, but it's also the antibody that protects against, say, worms and parasites. Then there are IgG and IgM antibodies, and these are generally um, to protect us against pathogens, so harmful bugs. And um, that's the reaction that we're generating when you get a vaccine to protect you against a bug for the future. What happens is there are, the immune system is, is what is called primed. So when the immune system has seen a food and mistriggers that it's a foe, not a friend, it makes IgE antibody which is circulating. And that circulating antibody attaches to these little mast cells and they're like little mines or grenades. Um, and so it's like a little ball, the mast cell. And on the outside is all this... Uh, like a hedgehog, the antibody is sticking out, um, ready to be um, activated if the food is re-entered into the system. So once someone has these little grenades sitting around in their blood, um, they, they eat the food and that food sticks to the outside of the grenade and activates the grenade and then it spits out histamine. And that's why when people have antihistamines, they're trying to get rid of the histamine. And histamine causes all sorts of symptoms, as Mimi said before. So histamines in red wine, sometimes people get reactions from red wine, but antihistamines are the way that they get rid of those symptoms. And therefore, antihistamines are a good way to get rid of allergy symptoms, but unfortunately they can't prevent anaphylaxis, which is mm. when the, the, the grenades, the little mast cells with the, with the spikes on the outside are exploding and letting off so much histamine that it causes all this swelling and leaky vessels and really But it's dangerous. not just the histamine. I think that's and the important things. And bradykinins and that, all those other things. That's the reason antihistamines aren't a good treatment for um, more serious forms of the allergy reactions, because it's not just the anti, it's not just histamines. No, that's an example. There are a bunch of other yeah. mediators that actually play very important roles in causing the symptoms of breathing and uh, circulation compromise. So I think, uh, yeah, the, these mast cells trigger off a cascade of other things that come in that are probably a bit too complicated to get into at this point. But then this initial phase leads to a more delayed phase of inflammation. And some of these other factors can then cause the other issues of bronchospasm or tightening of the airways, Mm -hmm. narrowing of the airways, and um, the drop in the blood pressure, which are the life-threatening aspects of allergic reactions. But anyway, it all boils down to IgE being at the very start of it all. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we use that to diagnose the IgE-mediated food allergies. The, the problem with IgE being uh, relied upon is that you can actually have IgE antibodies um, to the food without necessarily having the allergy. But maybe, Katie, you mm. could talk about that. Yeah, so with, as a patient you know, who comes along to an allergist, um, there are two types of tests that um, 
that the, or three types of tests actually that the allergist can do. Firstly, they'll take a history to see whether that, that immediate reaction is happening and to what food. So they want to, the, the history a doctor will take is what sort of food was eaten, how much of it was eaten, what was the time between eating it and the reaction. Uh, was it hidden some way? So, you know, was it cow's milk in a baked good so that the parent may not have thought about the fact that cow's milk was in there or mm. um, could it not have been a food that they thought it was. So the, the, the diagnostician or the allergist or GP will ha- ask that history um, and then uh, there are two uh, sort of tests to confirm that there is a food allergy. So the first test is a skin prick test um, and the other test is a blood test and both of those tests are looking for the presence or absence of IgE antibody. Um, and sometimes we need to go to a third test, which is the oral food challenge. And that's where you, you actually give the food to see if the child is, a, is allergic to that food. So for, for all intents and purposes, though, most of the ways that we diagnose allergy or food allergy is a history and a confirmatory blood or skin prick test. And um, then we uh, might use the food challenge when the, we're looking to see whether the child who has a food allergy has actually grown out of that food allergy. So we might use it to diagnose tolerance more commonly than, than diagnose allergy because, as I said before, nine times out of ten you can actually work it out just from the history and then you just confirm it with the blood test or skin prick test. So the skin prick test is uh, when a little drop of the allergen, the protein that the body is allergic to, is in some glycerol and it's, a, it's applied as a drop to the skin either the arm or the back, and then a small device uh, called a lancet uh, is used to scratch the skin like a little prick, and that introduces that protein into the surface under the very, very couple of millimetres surface of the skin. Um, and there are, if there's priming in the system, uh, the body will react by causing a little wheel or hive. And so within 20 minutes, there'll be a reaction there that can be used to identify whether someone has the antibody. And if they have the history and the antibody, um, then you have a confirmed diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And a blood test can do the same thing. They'll take the blood out and then they'll look to see if there's um, an antibody to the specific food um, in a laboratory-based test. So the skin prick test is usually done by allergists, but in fact, general practitioners can do the blood test. Um, now, as Mimi mentioned before, uh, in the old days, and we don't do this so much anymore, we used to do screening for certain foods. So if someone had a peanut allergy, we know that 25% of people who have peanut allergy also have tree nut allergy. So many doctors would do what we call a full nut panel where they would test all the nuts because then they want to work out whether a person with peanut allergy <laughs> should introduce the other nuts. And unfortunately, um, screening with a skin prick test is only right half of the time. So 50% of the time you, you have an antibody, but you can still eat the food. So it's a very uh, non-specific test in the absence of the history. So as a screening test, it's not a great test. As a confirmatory test, it's a great test. How can you still eat the food if you've got the antibody? Well, the point is is that the uh, an oral food challenge, which is the gold standard for diagnosis, is literally exposing them to the body and seeing if they get the food reaction. So if you've got a history of a reaction, you've kind of had a food challenge in the community. You've had a natural food challenge. Uh, so uh, nowadays, we really don't encourage people to screen Um, because we say have the food in tiny doses and if you have a reaction, come and get a confirmatory test so that we're not over-diagnosing food allergy. Because I think 15 to 20 years ago, there was a lot of over-diagnosis of food allergy. Well, but your question's a really good one. So how is it that you can have the IgE antibody and not react when you eat the food? And we don't know the answer to that, unfortunately. That's a million-dollar question. (laughs) Obviously, there must be um, other immune 
factors at play that suppress that whole IgE cascade that I talked about earlier. Um, There are other reasons as well, though, um, and sometimes we can make what's called cross-reactive antibodies. So in a food, let's use peanut as an example, the peanut protein, there's, there's hundreds of peanut components inside of that peanut protein. You know what I mean by that? So yeah. the, the peanut protein is made up of a, lots and lots of different components. Yeah. And some of are those... They, are they different proteins or is it just the, the components inside that protein? They're parts of proteins. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so they're, they're different... Yeah. Short bits of the, the protein. Yeah. Yeah. And um, these are what can be recognised by antibodies because your antibody doesn't recognise the whole thing. It's mm-hmm. too big. Yeah. So usually the antibody just recognises little pieces of proteins. Okay. Now these components can help us identify the people that will more likely have a true allergy rather than just have a positive allergy test. Um, in particular, there's one little component that Katie and I studied actually previously called ARAH2. It's just one little part of that protein of peanut. Mm. And if you happen to have an antibody to that part of that peanut, you're more likely to have clinical allergy to and peanut. It, and in fact, that oh. is actually opening up a whole new area, which is called component resolved diagnostics, um, where instead of doing the non-specific whole protein, um, commercial tests are now available to a subpart of it, such as our H2. And Mimi and I have published this paper that um, shortcuts um, how we get to the, the diagnosis when in doubt. And so that's kind of been helpful to decrease uh, the question about has someone got an allergy or not. And that that's sort of the, the brave new world going forward where we'll be more specifically targeting one part of the protein rather than the whole protein. Is that accessible? Yeah, so so, so we use it now. In fact, Mimi introduced it into into the department. We use it as a two-step sort of step two-step process mm-hmm. um, so that if someone has a whole peanut allergy or a, whole, a, whole, a, a serum IgE that's a certain level, then we'll activate the second step test um, in, to, in order to avoid doing a food challenge. In those kids who already have a peanut allergy and we're trying to work out where they've grown out of their peanut allergy. So for all intents and purposes, uh, at the diagnosis point, you just need a history and some evidence of an antibody. Now we're, now that conversation is going to how do you diagnose tolerance and that's a, a different step because mm-hmm. someone's already got the allergy and we're trying to work out whether they've grown out of that allergy. And that's when we usually need to go to the step of either doing a component resolved diagnostic, the ARH2, which is yep. looking at little fragment, and just as a, as a, as a side note, more than 90% of people with peanut allergy in Australia have ARH2 as the component they're allergic to, while in other countries, in Europe, it might be a different component. So there is now an understanding that uh, the allergies can be regionalised, and so some people are allergic to one part of the protein and others to another part of the protein. Is that ARH2, is, is that a larger component or is it still just smaller. the same size as... It's smaller. Like Because there's one to nine. There's ARH, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, yep. and ARH2 is the one that people are most allergic to in the Australian context. Would you consider... Um, like a misdiagnosis, quite dangerous for IgE? Look, of course it is, but I don't know if it happens all that often. I think most people, because it's so clearly associated with having eaten a food they've never eaten before for the first time, really, I mean, I often say... Diagnosing IgE-mediated food allergy is not rocket science in medicine. Mm. What is, is is helping people navigate the information about how to keep their child safe or themselves safe. That, that's probably... And the, and, and the education and managing the anxiety is probably the hardest part about it. The diagnosis, people often come in knowing pretty much something's not right. 
So yeah. I, I don't think, you know, I, they I might agree. miss it, but it's not that common to miss it. I think the more important thing is the reverse of that, yeah. that, you, you know, you make the diagnosis it. and it's mm. not actually there. Mm. And then the implication from that is mm. that the the child ends up having to exclude something from their diet when they never needed to. And it's a problem if it's a staple food like yeah. egg or milk or, you know, or even if you've mis- been misdiagnosed with a nut allergy, then that's a problem because, um, you know, you're, in, you're putting on them now a whole heap of anxiety that they probably didn't ever need to have. Um, Do you know, it's worth, it's worth noting that um, Australia really, and I'm not trying to pat the back of all the allergists in the community because I'm actually a gastroenterologist who's sort of merged into the world of allergy, um, but when I travel to the US or the UK, um, a lot of the allergists there will say they spend most of their time telling people they don't have allergies. So in the UK in particular, they'll say there's so many people who sort of self-diagnose and they've got it wrong. But in, in Australia, and I think it's because we've got a great triage system, I'd say it'd be pretty rare for me to see someone who's who's been misdiagnosed with a food allergy and have come in to see me when we're talking about the IgE-mediated ones. The non-IgE are much more complicated, and we'll get to that in a later episode. Mm-hmm. But the IgE, usually the GP uh, triage system is very good. People can recognise it. They send it into the specialists, and, and I think we're pretty good in Australia about recognising it. And just to put it all in perspective, I mean, you said how dangerous is it to have a misdiagnosis? So if you've missed a diagnosis. How dangerous is that? I think just to put it in perspective, I mean, most reactions when you have an allergy are not serious. Most 99 out of 100 probably, we think, when people have a diagnosis. It's probably only one in 100 will be anaphylaxis of the reactions. Yeah, and I mean, it does depend on the age and yeah. it's more likely to be sort of... Uh, funnily enough, anaphylaxis is more common in young children under the age of five than older. But the reality is most reactions are not anaphylaxis. And moreover, I think it's it's a good time to point out that even if it is serious, most of those reactions get better on their own without necessarily even needing treatment. The, the body is actually quite good at um, keeping the breathing and the circulation sufficient to maintain life, so to speak. Um, most of those, they don't end up in death. But just to sort of finish up to say, you know, the likelihood of dying is very, very low. And um, a study was done actually by uh, colleagues of ours um, in the UK showing that the likelihood of death from a food allergy reaction is about as common as dying from being struck by lightning. (laughs) And in fact, our own uh, colleague here in Australia, Professor Kemp, years ago worked out that um, the likelihood of dying from food allergy in Australia was about the same as dying from a soccer goal falling on you during a soccer game. So there are all of these... And you know the funny reaction when I tell my patients that? They go, should we stop our kids playing soccer? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but in fact, I understand... That's a good one. <laughs> no, but I understand the advocacy from yeah. Professor Kemp has meant that the soccer goal re- re- legislation has improved. Yeah, <laughs> that's, oh, that's, well, a good that's, that's good. Yeah, you can't stop the lightning, though. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> no, uh, you know, that's just sort of to answer your first question before about, you know, is, is it actually dangerous then to miss a diagnosis? It is, but just to put it in perspective... Um, one, as Katie said, it's not that common that someone misses the diagnosis because people are familiar with it now. Mm-hmm. Pretty apparent. Um, but secondly, if, if it is delayed to some degree, we don't. I think it's unlikely that someone would run into a mm. huge amount of trouble. Not, I don't want to get us into trouble now mm-hmm. saying something like that, but um, we're well, just good to put the perspective out there. So how would you generally diagnose a patient? So what happens is um, a patient will turn up and say, my baby's just had the first bite of a peanut butter sandwich um, and within a few minutes their lips have swollen, um, their face may have hives all over it, 
um, and they might start to cough and wheeze. And they come to see us as allergists saying, um, we think our baby has an allergy. So, so it's a pretty clear diagnosis um, and it's pretty easy uh, to, to, to recognise that once you're talking about these sorts of conditions. And it's almost always the first time that the child has eaten the food. Um, as we said before, one of the, the big eight, usually it's one of those. And so they can have skin reactions, so hives, which are like little mosquito bites or welts uh, around the mouth, on the face or all over the body. So they can be um, facial hives or generalised hives, meaning all over the body. They can have something called angioedema, which is swelling of the lips or swelling around the eyes. They can have swelling of their tongue. Uh, they may have vomiting or diarrhoea immediately within a few minutes of eating the food. Um, or they may have um, reactions that involve the airways or the circulation. So the airways can present um, with coughing, wheezing, difficulty breathing, and it might affect their voice box so that they get a, a change to their voice or even the change to the baby's cry. Uh, they might start to have struggling to breathe. Um, they're, they're turning blue. Um, they um, may collapse. Um, they may um, become very pale. Um, there's lots of quite dramatic symptoms. Um, and the parents are frightened enough usually uh, to go and see a doctor immediately or go to an emergency department. I think one of the things, um, as Katie's just said, you know, you get the four s systems involved, the skin, the gut, the breathing and the circulation. What's interesting to me is when um, we see our patients, they get terrified by the skin changes, the swelling of the face, the hives and everything, and that's actually what makes them fearful. And so, that, you know, that makes them panic and, and they think their child's actually potentially going to die. But it turns out you can't, those symptoms are not life-threatening. You can't die from swelling or hives or even vomiting. Um, it's the breathing problems and the circulation problems that are actually life-threatening. And I think parents don't really recognise that a lot of the time. And I think part of that is because... Um, Asthma's a very familiar thing to the community now because we've been, you know, educating the community for more than 20 years about asthma and everybody's very familiar with them. And so they don't see a wheeze as a dangerous sign or a symptom. And of course, Katie mentioned hoarse voice and that's, you know, so what? You've just got a bit of a hoarse voice. Maybe you had a rough night, but actually <laughs> it's not the case. The baby's I mean, been on the bottle. Yeah, the baby's <laughs> been on the booth. But um, the, the hoarse voice to us as doctors, that's a serious symptom yeah. because it means that the airway um, is now compromised. You know, the, the voice box is at the top of your lower airway. And so anything from that level downwards, we are worried about. So the hoarse voice, the wheezing, any noisy breathing mm. of any sort, difficulty breathing. Now, that is actually potentially life-threatening. But parents have a disconnect, probably because of what we as doctors have been doing for the last 20 years, which is making them feel very comfortable about asthma, which is fine. But it's just to try and explain to them. And also the, the, the circulation symptoms, which are being pale and floppy, a parent may not pick that up as, oh, that's actually really serious. That's, in fact, the most serious type of allergic reaction you can get mm. is when the child becomes pale and floppy. Mm. I, think, I, think, I think many parents um, uh, do, but um, they are. it's more that they're more often more anxious about the skin reactions because I always say to people, they might look like Michelin Man, but because it's the symptoms or the sign is on the outside, it's not 
going to be life-threatening. You can swell up and get all swollen, but that's not going to kill you. But if you can't breathe or if your circulation is shut down, that's what's going to kill you. So, in fact, we're, we're now battling a little bit about this word, you know, we, we call them mild, moderate and severe reactions and severe is anaphylaxis. I've been explaining to my patients, it's not mild, moderate and severe, it's serious versus non-serious. And serious means inside and non-serious is outside. <laughs> That's the way I try to explain That's it because it. if you've just got a couple of hives um, on the outside, um, then that's obviously mild uh, and non-serious. But if you've got a bit of a cough and a wheeze, um, then that is actually serious, even though it might seem mild to the parent. So the location is probably more important than the severity of symptoms. And I think we've got to move away from that um, to help patients understand what it is what it is about it. What you're describing, Mimi, is that uh, it, it's the it's the implications of the airways and circulation being shut down that is the serious consequence. And if you think about it logically, I mean, we know that when, you know, first aid, what do you have to look after? The breathing and the circulation, right? Airway, breathing, circulation. That's first aid. Everybody learns it. Mm-hmm. Check the airway, check the breathing and fix the circulation. Well, it's exactly the same here. We're really just focusing on those sim- systems that you need to stay alive. But often people are worried um, with food allergies when they've been diagnosed that, oh, well, then if the child starts to cough, are they having anaphylaxis? So it's uh, only a very small amount of reactions are only in the airways. Usually it's a progressive set of presentations. So usually the child will start with skin reactions. So there'll be hives, their skin will swell up, their lips will swell up. If they start to balloon, but it'll stop there 90% of the time. Like this, probably 99% of the time, it just stops at the skin reaction. And then uh, about one in 50 or one in 100 reactions will go on to also involve the airways and the breathing. And that's a progressive and becoming more dangerous situation. So people listening might say, oh, goodness, my child just coughed. Have they had anaphylaxis? They have to have just eaten the food. Within a few minutes afterwards, they'll see some signs. Their skin will get red and flare up and their skin will swell or get hives. And then it may progress on to coughing and breathing problems. So it's fairly instantaneous. It's within five to ten minutes. It it can occur up to an hour later, but usually the first presentation, it's pretty clear their relationship. Um, And in kids who already have food allergy and they're eating some foods, maybe it will be a bit delayed. But usually the first diagnosis, it's within a few minutes. So that's the thing for the uninitiated to understand. Now, there are some very rare circumstances where they present with severe wheezing and breathing problems, but a parent is going to recognise there's a problem and get them to a hospital. If the child's breathing is difficult, they're going to get them there no matter what the cause. So for all intents and purposes, for someone listening, it's going to be a recognisable skin reaction that progresses to airways and breathing just, just to keep people on the calm side too. And there's something else actually really interesting about IgE-mediated reactions or allergies is that um, the food reactions tend to present with more skin and airway symptoms with less often involving the circulation, that sort of pale, floppy, collapse thing. But if you actually think about like insect sting allergies, so the bees, wasps, so the serious forms of reactions for the insect sting allergies tend to be more about the circulation and the gut. Um, whereas the serious forms of reactions for foods tend to be more about breathing problems associated with skin problems. And I've always found that very interesting myself. I don't know why that is, um, why it is that certain uh, allergies present in different ways, but it is something that's interesting for families to note as well, I think. So often I hear from people and they say, 
so, so parents are often very frightened to introduce a new food because what if they have anaphylaxis? And um, so there is this concept in the community that your first reaction isn't as severe as a subsequent reaction. And I say to people, I don't know where they got that from because we can't predict which reaction will be severe and which one won't, won't be severe. But I guess what it might come from is that there hasn't, to our knowledge, and we've looked in the literature, there hasn't been a death from anaphylaxis from the first exposure reported. Hmm. It's, there's no case studies about the first episode of exposure and having anaphylaxis and dying. Now, maybe because they were missed or undiagnosed. So, um, people who um, you know, people who have their first episode of anaphylaxis very rarely have an epipen because they've never been diagnosed. Yeah. So. To, to Mimi's point about the reaction, often the reaction itself, even if it's anaphylaxis, is self-resolving. But getting back to that car seatbelt safety concept, um, you know, if you've got a seatbelt, you know, you might still die if you're in a car accident, but if you've got the seatbelt, you want to put it on. Mm -hmm. So if you've got an adrenaline auto-injector, which is the adrenaline that you've been prescribed by your doctor, then you have to carry it so that you're keeping yourself safe or keeping your child safe. But there is this concept about, well, what if we introduce the food for the first time and they haven't been diagnosed, will they potentially die? And it's very, very unlikely. I mean, nothing in medicine is ever 100%. Because, you know, there's always the rare case and that's what we write up in our medical literature about. Um, but parents can feel pretty comfortable that if they give a tiny dose first when they're trying to introduce the food, then it's unlikely to cause, you know, they might have anaphylaxis, but it's unlikely to be something that's going to be fatal. And that's what we tend to emphasise, actually. So when you're introducing a food for the first time is you're not going to sit there and eat a whole peanut butter sandwich or a whole drink a whole glass of milk. You're going to take a little bit at a time and see if uh, anything, well, if there are any issues. That's like weaning food. So when you're introducing food to a baby, you usually just start with a teaspoon for the first time and then yeah, a bit start more the with next little time. bits and increase, yeah. If you want to find out more, Katie and Mimi have created a free smartphone app called Allergy Pal, which has lots of life-saving features that can help keep your kids safe and make your life that little bit easier. Pick it up from your favourite app store. Allergies was presented by Professor Katie Allen and Professor Mimi Tang and was produced by me, Matt Dwyer, with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Join us in our next episode as we explain what anaphylaxis is and how we diagnose it. Listener.